Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, regardless of where you live in the world. But then again, for some of you, it might already be Saturday, depending on where you live. But no matter uh, what day I'm on the air with you all during the week, it's always good to be with you guys because all of you have been such excellent uh, supporters of my podcasts and have been ardent um, learners and that regardless of the subject that has been discussed per each book topic, all of you have come away learning more than you did before regardless of that matter being addressed. Well, this episode of uh, Adams versus Jefferson, a little tongue twister there, <laughs> this episode of Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800, we're going to be um, learning a little bit more about um, behind-the-scenes uh, matters. And then again, uh, behind-the-scenes is vague on to itself, but what we're going to learn is that um, come 1800, we're going to find out that there are, uh, that the states, you know, let's keep in mind that there are uh, 16 states as we go into 1800. Is it fair to say that all 16 states have the same uh, method of uh, selecting uh, presidential electors? No. Is that a bad thing? No. Is it possible that, um, that one of the reasons why each of the states is allowed to choose their own method for uh, selecting um, presidential electors? Could it be that the uh, 10th Amendment to the United States Constitution, being the last of the Bill of Rights Amendments, is considered, is labeled as the following, the 10th Amendment being those powers reserved to the states? Even that's vague onto itself, but a power that is reserved to um, one of the many powers that could be reserved to the states or one of a select number of powers that could be reserved to the states is how each state is given the right to choose its own um, system for how uh, elections are to uh, be um, administered on a statewide level and for whenever, say, a U.S. senator were to either resign uh, pass away, the governor of that state has the right to go go about um, choosing his or her replacement until um, an actual um, election takes place to determine um, the senator to determine if the replacement who uh, replacement candidate who wins is able to serve out the rest of that uh, candidate's um, term, unfulfilled. Um, term, meaning that the term had not been completely finished. So that's, that's just an example of what we would call under the Tenth Amendment of uh, powers reserved to the states, but nonetheless we will uh, learn more about how each, not each individual state, but in other words we can learn, um, or we have the potential to learn in this segment about how many states um, did um, a particular method, or ra rather I should say how many states um operated under one particular method of um, choosing their electors, that is, presidential electors, and, and how it differed from other states who might have done the opposite. But we will also learn in this um, 
segment about um, those individuals whom uh, were supporters of John Adams within his own party. We will also learn a little bit more about the overall, um, what do you call it, um, ideological criteria behind the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans based upon what they stood for. However, I should point out that we've probably already learned a handful of stuff, but I think it's fair to say that there is some other stuff that we have really not touched up touched upon that is of relevant use. So our first uh, lead-off question going into this uh, podcast segment for uh, tonight of um, Adams versus Jefferson, and of course some of you who are listening, it might already be daytime, being Saturday. So our first lead-off question, uh, regardless of wherever you all live in the world, is the following. What did a particular Republican uh, newspaper illustrate to its readers. Okay. Um, what do you think a particular Republican newspaper or a, a, a newspaper that would have catered to the Jeffersonian Republicans and to those whom are, you know, anti-federalist, what do you think this one particular newspaper, um, we don't know the name of the newspaper, but what do you think it would have illustrated to its readers? Is it fair to say that this newspaper provided the differences as to what each party stood for? Yes. Okay. Is it fair to say that we know that the Federalists are the party whom um, favor having the wealthy and the well-educated running the government? Yes. And what do I mean by well-educated? Do I mean necessarily that someone who attends Harvard or Yale um, should be uh, in the government? Well, I think it is fair to say that for the Federalists, they would like men whom are running the government to have a college education. But one thing I have to give the Federalists credit for is that when they say well-educated, that means men whom have supreme knowledge about an assortment of matters that would be of relevant use with regards to representing uh, their constituents from the states that they represent, or from their own home respective state. So in other words, if you have um, strong knowledge about um, manufacturing, and you know enough about manufacturing from a business perspective, wouldn't you want to take those interests or uh, knowledge that you possess and go to Congress to represent those whom have sent you in, or elected you in? Yes. And in the eyes of the Federalists being wealthy, yes, the people they do represent are those whom are of gentry status, whom are of um, what I would say are uh, people who um, who are more concerned about their land values and are and are very concerned about making sure that um, that money is passed down from one generation to the next. Basically, they're concerned about keeping old money in the hands of they're concerned about making sure that old money does not blend in with anything that's new, a.k.a. new money, because like it's like that old saying, old money and new money don't go hand in hand very well. But I should keep in mind that even though Thomas Jefferson is a Virginian, didn't he come from um, a well-to-do family? Uh, I mean, given that his mother was a Randolph, yes. The Randolphs are gentry. 
So we have to keep in mind that the Federalists, while yes, they do have a stronghold in New England, they do have um, a bit of a unique base in the middle and uh, southern states. But besides uh, being the party that uh, caters to the wealthy and the well-educated, they are also the party that champions a monarchy style of government. And they have um, a major distrust of the people. And who are the people in their eyes whom they have a distrust over? Anybody who does not um, fall into the uh, wealthy and well-educated criteria. They don't, um, they don't really have a lot of trust for the artisan, skilled workers or everyday laborers who get their hands dirty. Well, you know what I find odd is that here they, uh, many Federalists represent those who are in the manufacturing industry, but what's ironic is that even in the shipbuilding industry there's manufacturing involved. Uh, think about like rope making. Um, you, you know, think about people making um, sailcloth. You know, those people get their hands dirty. So to me, I kind of find that as a double-edged sword. Could it be that maybe the Federalists are only interested in those who uh, represent manufacturing, whom are the, what we might think of as the equivalent of a CEO in today's time, um, the boss who um, is the one that pretty much calls the shots, those who are of merchant tier status? Yes, that, I think that's probably a better way of uh, summing it up. But uh, the Federalists also are um, supporters when it comes to establishing uh, churches, or what I say they want to, uh, rather I should say they would like to keep uh, church and state intact. And by keeping church and state intact, both uh, bodies can turn to one another for advice. Both bodies can turn to one another for, um, for means of... Um, communication on matters that are either not 100% that have not been 100% um, resolved or basically matters that uh, benefit uh, both uh, parties. After all, we should keep in mind that yes, churches do help keep a community together, but depending on where you live, there might only be one church in your community. And we should keep in mind that in Virginia, for a long period of time, up until the late 1770s, the Anglican Church is what ruled Virginia. And if any of you haven't been to Colonial Williamsburg, you will find on Duke of Gloucester Street, one church. That is, um, it's uh, an Anglican church, and it's... Uh, and it's been around since uh, 1715, although there have been... Um, there have been other uh, church-dwelling uh, structures on the site. But, you know, when we think of churches in a community in today's time, we think of multiple churches. But even in colonial times, depending on where you lived, you might have, there might have been, been exceptions, most notably like Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But in Virginia, you did not have 10 and 12 churches in a community. Um but in, in the case of Williamsburg, there was only one church, the Anglican Church. And even if you did not attend the Anglican Church, you still had to pay your taxes to the Church of England. So is this a situation where, um, where church and state reigned supreme in Virginia for a long time? Yes. 
is it fair to say that there are those in Virginia whom are against the Anglican Church? Well, we'll find that out here shortly. But yes, the Federalist Party is very big on establishing uh, churches, and most notably as a means of supporting the uh, concepts behind church and state. And the Federalist Party is very big on those alien and sedition acts. Most, In this case, I'm going to mention the Sedition Act. And why, why do the Federalists love the Sedition Act? Because they want to destroy the concepts behind free press, free speech, the right to assemble, petition. I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, we have to keep in mind back in 1787 that there were... Um, that the Constitution, um, when it was um, implemented, there were no Bill of Rights right away, although there were some whom attended who wanted a Bill of Rights, most notably uh, Virginia's governor, Edmund Randolph, uh, along with um, Mr. George Mason, for whom George Mason University is named after, along with uh, Mr. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. They all left. They left because... There were no Bill of Rights included. Well, it wouldn't take that long, a few years after the Constitution, not long after George Washington became president, that we did get our Bill of Rights. So I have to think to myself, okay, there, there had to have been Federalists who wanted a Bill of Rights and who would have championed free speech as well as free press. So it is fair to say that probably not all Federalists supported the Sedition Act, but it is fair to say that a good number of them did, most notably Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson's huge nemesis, and perhaps John Adams's as well. So the Republicans, on the other hand, are the, are the party whom opposes monarchy. After all, they are clinging on to the principles and ideals behind the American Revolutionary War, largely on the grounds that uh, their commander-in-chief, the late George Washington, had fought a war, a long eight-year war, to uh, be fully rid of monarchs in America. So that besides opposing monarchy, uh, the Republicans are big, um, they are big on this. Abolishing church and state. Why would uh, Republicans about want to abolish church and state? Because they view church and state, and I will mention this again somewhere here down the road here shortly, but Republicans do not want the church telling the state how to conduct its um, daily governmental um, duties. And Republicans do not want the state in this case being the government, telling the church how to um, address its um, sermons to members of the congregation. In other words, the minister ought to be independent from any other source above in how he goes about conducting, or I should say preaching his sermons to um, the congregation. Because if the state is going to tell the minister how what he can and cannot preach, then how can a minister maintain a congregation or let alone a functioning church? So the bottom line is, is that for the Republicans, church and state need to be in, independent from one another in order to have any kind of good government um, functioning on a relevant level.
The Republicans also support religious freedom, and I'll elaborate more on that here in a little bit. After all, um, when I think of freedom of religion, I um, think of basically the following, meaning that there is no interference from church and state uh, requiring one to um, become compelled to where they have to practice one religion or worship a worship of a certain um, element of faith but cannot um, practice any other means of uh, worship. So in other words, the Republicans don't want um, one to be compelled to one religion for their whole life. In other words, it's okay for uh, John Smith, let's say who starts out as being a Baptist, it's okay for John Smith to, when he marries Sally Jones, to marry, um, not just so much marry Sally, but marry into her faith, in this case, say, being Methodist. So in other words, there's nothing wrong with um, a couple of the same faith marrying one another, but there should be no laws telling people what they can and cannot preach based upon um, individual faith and and not just uh, pre not just um, when it comes to engage, practicing their faith on a personal level that is an individual basis, but how they choose to practice their faith amongst others. And most and then another thing too um, that Republicans um, supported was having having favoring unlimited freedom of press. In other words, freedom of press uh, cannot be restricted. They have a right to report on what they think is unjust or what is fair or what can what should be considered um, a matter in their eyes that needs reform. In other words, if you restrict one's right to free press, then how, then how can one um, publish their thoughts and feelings in, in an article? Well, what Federalist men were considered to be ardent uh, supporters behind John Adams? I can name you a few right here. How about uh, John Marshall, uh, whom was um, John Adams' new Secretary of State, whom replaced Timothy Pickering? Then you had a fellow named Noah Webster. Does Webster's Dictionary sound familiar? Yep. Noah Webster went on to become editor of two New York newspapers, Men like Marshall and Webster knew that John Adams was a man whom could always be trusted, given his uh, impeccable um, record of government service, given that he was vice president to George Washington for eight years, given that he, um, given that he had um, sacrificed everything for his country, even um, during that eight-year war, to be uh, free from um, tyranny 3,000 miles across the ocean. Here's another fellow that will get mentioned at some point before this uh, series comes to an end, and he was mentioned um, from um, a good while back when, um, when around the time when I first started uh, podcasting. Uh, his name is Dr. Benjamin Rush, and the last time I probably mentioned anything about him was um, during um, the series we did on Thomas Paine, as well as... Um, from the book uh, Signing Their Lives Away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. But Dr. Benjamin Rush, uh, for those of you who don't know about Dr. Rush, or for those of you who have forgotten, 
He was a prominent Philadelphia physician and a signer to the Declaration of Independence. He was a uh, ardent supporter of John Adams. He spoke on Adams's behalf by saying that he never once supported a monarchy style of government in America. And he also said that Adams never supported having a permanent alliance with England. Of course, the Jay Treaty, um, which was signed during the time that George Washington was president, did help improve uh, relations between England to where England did um, remove um, military uh, units or army units from a handful of uh, posts along the Northwest Territory as well as in the uh, Great Lakes and Lake Champlain regions to where commercial ties were, um, were gradually improving. And even as we go into the start of a new century, commercial ties are still strong between the United States and England. So, yes, there is no permanent alliance, but there is a modified alliance. But for Dr. Benjamin Rush, he knows that John Adams never uh, once thought about wanting to support a monarchy style of government in America, as well as establishing a permanent alliance. How did Federalists, let's be prepared, be prepared here for some, um, for some even, um, what do you call it, for another round of questions that are going to ante things up to another level. Uh, how did Federalists wage war against Thomas Jefferson? Well, for starters, they turned to negative campaigning just like their opponents, a.k.a. Republicans, had done. <laughs> Isn't negative campaigning a norm in today's world? Yes. Is it nasty? Yes. You know, politics may be noble, but sadly it is dirty work. So, yes, for starters, they turned to negative campaigning just like their opponents, uh, the Republicans, had done. But the Federalists decided to trace Thomas Jefferson's political record dating back 20 years earlier, around 1781. And... I'll just tell you all this now. I have a pretty good idea of the next book that we're going to do um, in the next uh, series after we're done with this one. As a matter of fact, um, it, it will pertain to the year 1781, and it will pertain to Thomas Jefferson. I know I've already mentioned it from a previous podcast, but after I read um, the book, I decided that I needed to... Um, share this story with you all, which I'll do in the next uh, podcast uh, book series discussion. But anyways, the Federalists have traced Thomas Jefferson's political record dating back to 1781. Most notably, um, around June of 1781, early June, when uh, British forces made their way beyond uh, Richmond, Virginia, Remember, uh, in 1780, the capital of Virginia relocated from Williamsburg to uh, Richmond. Thomas Jefferson advocated the move because he felt that by moving the capital to Richmond, uh, Virginia would be in a better um, fortified position and Richmond would be immune from any uh, British invasion. Well, just because you're not anywhere near water, that doesn't mean that you're always safe. 
It doesn't mean that the unexpected can happen. Just because the capital might be in a wilderness, and of course we already know that by 1800, around the middle of 1800, that's when uh, Washington, D.C. will officially, that's when government will officially start doing, um, start conducting its affairs. But even when the capital relocated from Philadelphia to Washington, not to get off track, but I'll just mention this, even when that happened, uh, Abigail Adams was the one that referred to uh, Washington as a wilderness. And it truly was a wilderness in its early years. But back to what we're talking about here, that um, in June of 1781, the British forces, most notably under Colonel Banastray Tarleton and Benedict Arnold, they made their way past Richmond, and they got as far west as as uh, Charlottesville. Jefferson's estate is in Charlottesville, folks. It's up on that little mountain, Monticello. Of course, that's Italian for little mountain. Jefferson um, had been warned on a couple of instances that's something I learned from this uh, other book. Of course, if I give it away now, I'm, I'm sure many of you all would, would say, what's the point in even doing the podcast on that for that new series? But the bottom line is, is that Jefferson left in the nick of time. Had he waited any longer, uh, he would have been a prized um, trophy for the British. In other words, they would have captured him and they would have taken him to England where he would have been tried and um, would never have been allowed to have um, returned back to America. He basically would have died overseas, 3,000 miles across the ocean. So yes, Jefferson avoids enemy capture, but the Federalists portrayed him as an incompetent leader during a time of crisis like war. I mean, yes, there is a major conflict. I mean, we are still fighting this war to get our freedom from England, but the bottom line is a crisis... Um, had ensued in Virginia to where, in many ways, it was like the equivalent of a 9-11, and people didn't know what was happening. There really had not been enough of a, um, of a sense of urgency. Warnings had been given to Mr. Jefferson. The problem was that Jefferson, in my opinion, had been too much of a micromanager, trying to do everything on his own, thinking that, oh, you know, whatever warnings I have been given, they wouldn't come this far. What would they want to do by coming west of uh, Richmond? Well, sometimes we've learned in history where uh, the inevitable does happen when you don't expect it. So yes, the Federalists have portrayed Jefferson as an incompetent leader during a time of crisis like war. They also go as far back as a few years earlier in 1796 when he uh, lost to John Adams by a by a thread, but it turns out that it had nothing to do with John Adams. They found they reverted to a letter that Jefferson had written to a friend, being Mr. Philip Mazai, who was one of um, Jefferson's overseers. Um, he was uh, a native of Italy, so his name in Italian was Filippo Mazai. Jefferson had written a letter that to Mr. Mazai, and it um, incorporated a various uh, matters. However, there was one matter that was not written in lengthy detail, but it was written enough to where it, it did ultimately backfire on Jefferson. 
you know, think about it. The technology that we have today uh, for doing things that are unbecoming is far more grand, and it doesn't make it right, but it's, it's far more grand than it was in the 18th century. However, nobody was immune from um, making mistakes that had ramifications in the 18th century, especially when it came to uh, writing a letter. It turns out that people were smart back then, like they are today, when it comes to being able to detect how one writes and, and being able to take it to a professional to determine if, in fact, the handwriting of a person who wrote the letter is, in fact, their writing. So, long story short of it, the letter um, contained damaging remarks about the commander-in-chief. And who was that commander-in-chief, folks, in 1796? George Washington. Thomas Jefferson had made, um, he didn't state George Washington's name, but he made remarks about the Federalists and their leader. Of course, Washington did not have a party affiliation, but it is fair to say that Washington did side with Federalists. After all, he did share the majority of their views, especially to have a strong central government. But the bottom line is, is that Jefferson wrote um, remarks that uh, did backfire on him to where the letter itself ruined the friendship that ruined the relationship that he had with George Washington. Washington never forgave him. I think it's fair to say that you don't turn your back on the general, even if you are not working in the cabinet or if you have um, stepped down like Jefferson had done three years before. You know, you don't, as they say, don't burn bridges, but it's fair to say that Thomas Jefferson did burn a bridge. But he probably wasn't the only forefather who may have made a um, mistake of his time that did have uh, consequences. But this is one that the Federalists saw as, um, as in their eyes, as being um, traitorous. Maybe not traitorous, but just um, downright offensive in their eyes, knowing that Washington was first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen and first in the hearts of his people. I mean, the guy, yes, he may have been high on a pedestal, but he didn't flaunt it. But the, bo but the bottom line is that Washington um, put the interests of his country first, and including those of the people, but to have a former cabinet member smear him, thinking that Washington would never recognize the, the handwriting. The bottom line is Philip Mazai turned his back on Jefferson. Jefferson thought he could trust the man. Mazai sent it to um, the paper, uh, to the local newspaper of the day, and the newspaper um, shop sent it overseas to America, where it did get published in uh, papers. And that's how many Federalist leaders got this. So the bottom line is that this should remind us that nothing was secret even in the 18th century. Sometimes it's just best to keep your thoughts to yourself. It's like that old saying, don't say everything that's on your mind. Of course, I think it's fair to say that we've all been guilty of that, but, uh, but it did go on. Uh, the Federalists also attacked uh, Jefferson when it came to uh, religion. This is a big one right here. Many in the Federalist camp uh, viewed Jefferson really as an atheist. Does anybody know what an atheist is? An atheist is someone who um, is a non-believer of God. Well, what religion did Thomas Jefferson grow up in? 
Well, for those of you who are from Virginia, and those of you who know enough about Jefferson, you know that Thomas Jefferson's mother was a Randolph. Well, what, why is that important? Well, for one, the Randolphs were um, a prominent uh, land-holding family in Virginia who owned land that went well past um, the fall line of Richmond into Albemarle County, even into what we now know as the Virginia-West Virginia line. Uh, there is a county in West Virginia named Randolph County. Um, it's home to uh, my wife's alma, college alma mater, Davis and Elkins, in Elkins, West Virginia. Uh, Randolph um, County is named in honor of the Randolphs. So, and the Randolphs not only are large, wealthy landowners, but they are members of a particular church, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And for those uh, who were powerful in Virginia, landowners, they were members of the Church of England. The Custises, the Lees, the Birds, uh, just to name a few um, powerful families that are up there with um, the Randolphs, uh, the Carters as well. So any, anytime you hear of those, um, those names, uh, not only think of them as wealthy landowners, but think of them as those whose uh, ties are bound to the Church of England. But the thing is, is that, uh, yes, Thomas Jefferson's um, religion was that of the Anglican. He was an Anglican. However, when he goes off to college at William & Mary, that's when his um, views on um, religion and what we now know as church and state start beginning to change. It's also, um, you know, Jefferson himself is even part of what we know as the Enlightenment. But Jefferson is beginning to um, believe that, hey, as relations with England are souring, is it fair to say that the um, the fundamental um, purposes or principles behind church and state um, should be reformed with time? So for the Federalists, they know that Jefferson does not like uh, church and state being tied together. They know that he wants church and state separated to where neither body could assist one another regardless of matter. He basically feels that church and state, if bound together, would threaten the greater existence of government. Well, I can back up this uh, claim right here. And the only reason I can say that I really can back it up is that whenever my wife and I have been to Colonial Williamsburg, we've listened to the gentleman who portrays a young Thomas Jefferson. And he talks to the audiences about a variety of subjects, but he has shared... Uh, very valuable information on religious, or what we call um, matters pertaining to religion that uh, would indicate that he is a supporter behind uh, the separation of church and state. But I do know this, that Thomas Jefferson did believe in God, so therefore he's not an atheist. But he felt that an individual's faith was a private matter. Another uh, man whom was uh, present in Philadelphia in 1776, although he did not uh, sign the Declaration of Independence, he did sign the Constitution, um, being Mr. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. Jefferson and Dickinson both firmly believed that an individual's faith was a private matter, one that simply did not require open exposure for unnecessary scrutiny. You know, it's one thing to say that 
Okay, um, I can tell you this much. I started out as an Episcopalian growing up, and then when I met my wife, I was converted to being a Baptist. Now, I'm sure many of you all would say that that's a radical switch. It is. But at the same time, you know, my family still respects me, um, even if I, if I don't uh, practice uh, my um, faith, my original faith in an Episcopal setting. Uh, but the bottom line is that... Um, that there need, there doesn't need to be any scrutiny for this. If there if people want to scrutinize someone's uh, personal choice on this, then they're the ones that, in my opinion, would have the problems. So Jefferson had also learned from past history, through various studies, and just including readings, how religion itself had become an undoing for greater. For the greater mankind. How had religion been a greater undoing? Well, if you think about it over in Europe, um, think about all the strife that occurred in England. Yes, the Protestant Reformation was glorious, but what did uh, Queen Mary want to do? She wanted to restore Catholicism to, the, to England. She wanted that to become the official church, the official head church. King Henry VIII broke away from the Catholic Church on the grounds that the Pope refused to grant him an annulment. King Henry VIII did not like the idea of a church controlling land, not just so much owning land, but also the resources that, go that, that lie beneath um, the surface of land. Of course, you know, it's one thing to break from the uh, Catholic Church, but you know, it's one thing to be of a Protestant sect, but just because you're a Protestant sect, it does not mean that you may have all the same freedoms as someone whom it, whom uh, practices of the uh, Anglican faith or Church of, or Church of England. So, you know, if you were a member of the Church of England, you had numerous privileges. Uh, you could hold public office. And of course, you had to swear your loyalty to the Church of England. They weren't just going to let some random Joe Schmo hold public office, but they also, if you lived in England and you were a member of the Church of England and you had um, performed your duties well to where you could um, serve in the government, you also had, had to adhere to Parliament's uh, Test Act from 1661, which made it um, a mandatory requirement that all elected members of the government were members of the Anglican Church, and that law stayed on the book until 1828 in England. For those of you who were with me when we did um, Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence, uh, that's where I first learned about that book. So let's keep learned about that um, that um, matter or that um, about that particular uh, matter and how uh, people had to be loyal to the Anglican Church just to hold public office. So in other words, the Church of England did not allow for Methodists or Baptists to be holding public office. They saw that pretty much as a threat, and in some instances maybe a threat to their national security. So Thomas Jefferson has seen how religious persecutions, religious intolerations, or the acts of religious intoleration have... Um, 
have led to such bad strife to where scores of people were forced to leave their ancestral homes in Europe to come 3,000 miles across the ocean to America where religious toleration stood a better chance of being accepted. However, it also would have depended on where one settled. So obviously if you went, came to Virginia, religious toleration is not going to be allowed. You can go to Massachusetts, there will be better religious toleration. And if you want to practice, let's say you're of Catholic faith, you can go to Maryland. Although the majority of Marylanders are of Protestant sect. But if you do want to practice uh, Catholicism in Maryland, you probably would have the support of the Carols. Because the Carols um, are are one of the most powerful families in America in terms of landholding um, status, but they are also of powerful um, importance because of their uh, Catholic faith. And But we should keep in mind, too, that even Catholics could not hold public office. They could not um, even practice law. They could not vote. Um, but ironically, Mr. Charles Carroll of Maryland um, was able to sign the Declaration of Independence, and he was the only one of 56 men who signed that document. So there was a, a revolutionary breakthrough in religious toleration come the time that of uh, separating from England. But if there was one city that was a haven for um, Catholic of the Catholic faith, it was Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my wife and I learned that when we were there this past summer, that Philadelphia was the first major city to open its doors for a haven of um, religious faiths, but most notably of the Catholic faith, because Catholics simply had not been able to practice their faith in any other um, city in America, whether it was Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, um, Boston, Massachusetts, New York City. Catholics had somewhere, they needed somewhere to go to really practice their faith, and that was uh, Philadelphia. How else could people have uh, campaigned in 1800 besides turning to print media? By hosting or attending political dinners, along with having picnics and barbecues. <laughs> Let's keep in mind, uh, we didn't have George Foreman grills back then, so um, so we're not going to be cooking things on a, um, on a grill like we know in today's time. But they had their own ways of um, cooking... Um, cooking what we call like um, a barbecue that might resemble what we think of as in today's time, just a little bit different, but there were barbecues uh, held. I found it interesting here that Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is uh, west of Philadelphia, was home at one time, uh, hosted a Republican gala where those present consumed 16 toasts. That's a lot of beverage, folks, to consume, but 16 toasts represented one toast for each state, including everything that Thomas Jefferson represented. The Federalists, on the other hand, um, engaged in um, Federalist street shows where militia companies um, performed, and uh, their performances included paying tribute to the late General George Washington. So it's fair to say that each party is conducting affairs that... Um, or what you call events that cater to the ideologies of their individual parties. Think of it as like a modern-day fundraiser in today's time. Going into 1800, did state legislatures hold greater power 
regarding presidential election. Yes. For starters, in 11 of 16 states, the state legislatures selected presidential electors. So basically, it was in the hands of the state legislatures, the state legislative bodies in 11 of the 16 states, to select the electors. However, there were five states, being North Carolina, Kentucky, Maryland, Rhode Island, and Virginia, where the electors got chosen by popular vote, meaning that the vote was given to those who were eligible to vote, whom could vote on the um, electors, whom would be chosen uh, to um, elect the uh, president. And what I mean by electing the president here, meaning those state electors, a.k.a. that would represent the electoral college body. Secondly, in 1800, states like Kentucky, North Carolina, and Maryland allowed the election of presidential electors by popular vote in districts. Of course, when I think of districts, I think of like congressional districts or districts that make up a, um, a county. Rhode Island and Virginia, however, went with general tickets that were chosen by popular vote regarding the selection of presidential electors. So there again, this is an example of where the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution comes into play, powers reserved to the states. And I don't see anything wrong with this. I mean, after all, as long as the job is getting done, that's all that matters. Which southern state proved uh, to be a hotbed in John Adams's? re-election bid for the presidency. I'm going to give you some choices here. Was it um, choice A, North Carolina? Was it choice B, Georgia? Is it choice C, Tennessee? Or is it choice D, South Carolina? So your choices are choice A, North Carolina, choice B, Georgia, choice C, Tennessee, Choice D, South Carolina. The answer is Choice D, South Carolina. For starters, uh, John Adams did not have a good relationship with, um, with uh, prominent uh, families in South Carolina. But most notably, if there was one prominent family I could choose in South Carolina who is actively still actively involved at this time on the national level, it's the Pinckney family. Of course, if for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with um, powerful families in South Carolina, you've got the Pinckneys, you've got the Laurens, the Draytons, you've got the Rutledges, the Middletons. These are families that are um, old money. These are families that have married into one another, and by assuring that the money stays in, old, in the hands of the uh, powerful, that is, the families that are uh, powerful and uh, enough to where they uh, can control a lot of um, influence as to what goes on in, their, in the state of South Carolina that will benefit those whom, um, whom can um, attain um, accesses or who, whom can attain um, power. That's probably the best way to sum it up in a nutshell. So John Adams did not have the strongest relationship with the Pinckney family, although um, an incident gets published in the Aurora, which was a Federalist newspaper. The newspaper basically felt that the Adam that John Adams had um, 
said uh, deceitful things about the Pinckneys to the point where he felt that the Pinckneys were not um, worthy of of uh, having um, family members of theirs be a part of the government. Do you uh, who do you think may have encouraged this article to have been written? Mr. Alexander Hamilton. Tell you, he's quite a backstabber, to say the least. He doesn't care whom he hurts, just as long as he can get something his way. But isn't that the truth in today's uh, modern-day um, modern system of politics? Just when you think you can trust someone, or just when you think you know someone, and you would know them well enough that they wouldn't do anything that was unbecoming, they come back and do something to you. So bad that it's like, you know, I can't trust that person anymore. Well, John Adams um, came back and basically just said that he never recalled saying anything uh, defamatory about the Pinckneys. But apparently it wasn't enough in Hamilton's eyes because Hamilton's, because Mr. Hamilton himself portrayed John Adams as one who uh, showed poor judgment of character. But who's Alexander Hamilton to, to um, you know, he acts as though he can't do anything wrong, but yet he's, he does things behind people's back. He, he, he says things that are, on, he says everything that's on his mind. It's a double-edged sword. It's a nasty one. By mid-October of 1800, the South Carolina State Legislature is up for election. But the major outcome was whom would come away as the winner in the presidential election. The Pinckney family is predominantly Federalist, but there is an exception. And is it fair to say that this exception is like the equivalent of a black sheep? You know, all families seem to have a black sheep. That one family member who's just not either there, doesn't have it all together, or just does things differently. That family member may not be bad, but he or she's just the one that um, that just um, is either in their own world or is just doing things a little bit differently. Well, it turns out that the Pinckney family does have a black sheep, and that his name is Charles Pinckney, who happens to be a Republican. But he is second cousin to Thomas and Charles Coatsworth. Mr. Charles Pinckney defected parties in the aftermath of being denied a diplomatic post. Ah, it doesn't take much to um, change your allegiances when you are denied something that you feel you worked and deserved to have. Why is the number 16 important? Because it's the number of South Carolina um, representatives whom were undecided as to whom they would choose for president, being Thomas Jefferson or their native son, Mr. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. Well, how could um, this matter be resolved? One scenario outcome in South Carolina could have could result in Thomas Jefferson getting this getting eight electoral votes. The bigger question is who would get the other eight? Well. That that's a that's a question right there that may have to be um, determined from another podcast. However, uh, Thomas Jefferson is residing in Monticello when South Carolina election results make their way into Virginia, although it wasn't election day yet. 
However, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr trailed Adams, trailed John Adams and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney by 58 votes to 53. Now, in today's um, modern day um, political um, electoral college, there are 538 electoral votes. How many would you need uh, to win in today's time to become president? Because remember, the electoral college is whom elects the is um, whom elects the president, and it's the electoral vote that determines whom wins the presidency. You need 270, but in eight in 1800, you need 70. That's a big difference number there between 70 and 270, but 70 is the majority of electoral votes needed to win the presidency in 1800. Thomas Jefferson knew that John Adams would win votes from Rhode Island and uh, Pennsylvania. But he doubted, but he had lots of doubts about Adams's chances in South Carolina. Thomas Jefferson now um, is beginning to see Charles Coatsworth Pinckney of South Carolina as the candidate whom whom is more than likely to stand in his way of winning the presidency versus John Adams, largely on the grounds that Adams himself is no longer relevant in South Carolina. Well, when I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to uh, learn about the um, election outcome of 1800. We're going to learn about whom wins uh, which states. We might learn if any of the candidates uh, had split electoral votes in a, in a particular state or two. In other words, did John Adams win, elect, win, say, seven out of ten electoral votes in one state, whereas Jefferson could have gotten the other three? We might find out if uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney or Mr. Aaron Burr got any electoral votes. Remember, folks, at during this time, elect, um, the state um, electors are choosing two candidates. The one that gets the highest number of votes per their party um, wins on that ground. However, if the opposing if the candidate from the opposing party ends up winning more electoral votes, then that candidate wins and the runner-up becomes vice president. Well, thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. And uh, wherever you all may live in the world, thank you for um, being ardent supporters of uh, Anchor Podcast. And for those of you who know of people who would like to come to Anchor, uh, tell them that it's free. Uh, the opportunities are limitless. And once you get started, the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you for your time. And wherever you may live, uh, stay safe for now.